Welcome back to the Mighty Mer Podcast. I'm excited today to talk to John Kufos, uh, who has had an interesting life. Uh, I think that's a nice way of saying it, right, John? Very much so. And an amazing pathway to uh, where he started and sort of some highs and lows and what he's doing now in order to, uh, I will say, help people in recovery. I'm just going to jump right in, John, because I think your story is so neat and uh, interesting. I don't know if neat's the right word. That might be a poor poor word choice for an attorney. That's fine. I tell people it, it, it's a great story. I just wish it wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. So, John, uh, in your previous, I'm going to call it your previous life, you were a criminal defense attorney. And um, mm-hmm. could you tell me sort of your uh, path and how you uh, ended up there? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I'm from originally from Ocean County, New Jersey, although uh, now I split my time between, uh, you know, southern Jersey and uh, and D.C. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a very, very difficult environment. My father in and out of federal prison. In fact, he escaped from federal prison. He was on the run for six years. And uh, I traveled the, na- the the country at different times with him, living under assumed names as a kid. Uh, Mom oh had goodness, her own I, I, I I'm so sorry, because our podcast isn't about that, but, our, but we could do a whole podcast on that, right? Probably, probably. You know, my mom was a teenage mom, you know, it was a very abusive household. And uh, so anyway, so I grew up in poverty. I was raised primarily in Ocean County, I think, as I said. And uh, then, you know, I, I end up going to college, you know, a few years after I graduated high school in Brick, New Jersey. And uh, then went to law school at Fordham, came back to, to clerk in Ocean County, uh, worked at a law firm briefly in Ocean County. Great law firm, Bathgate, Weg- Wegner & Wolf. Great people there. Larry Bathgate's tremendous you know tremendous lawyer and I learned a lot from him but I wanted to try cases so I was in my 20s so I opened up a law firm uh, right away and uh, with a with another law clerk who actually worked at Bathgate so we left almost at the same time and um, you know when you're 20 something years old you know it's you know, Microsoft doesn't call you up to hire you as an attorney, right? You know, the people in the community that you know do, and oftentimes they've gotten jammed up for something. So that's how I started my my criminal law career, and uh, I got lucky. I, you know, I happened, I took to it. Uh, I had a lot of success. Um, in about a year and a half from when we started in Brick, I had another office in New Brunswick, and I had cases all over the state. And you know, I was a very young. I would become a very young certified criminal trial attorney. Um, and I think I tried cases probably in at least half the counties in New Jersey, if I remember. Um, but it was, a, you know, it was it was a wild time. A lot of murders, a lot of racketeerings, a lot of, lot of wiretaps. I just kept getting wiretap cases one after another. And I was, you know, I had no life. So I would actually listen to all the sessions to to, to figure out if we could do, you know, in, intrinsic, extrinsic minimization and so on. So when you say you had no life, it just means you weren't married. You didn't have kids yet, I'm assuming. And you were. That's correct. Married. So. I'm going to take you back just a few steps because you describe a very, I'm going to say chaotic um, and maybe trauma-filled childhood. And then you actually skimmed over the, oh, and I graduated high school and I went to college. And so um, I don't know if the, the graduating high school was kind of clean in my mind, but uh, based on the childhood, how did you get to the I'm going to college because it doesn't seem like that necessarily was the path based on 
the childhood? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, so I graduated high school and uh, and I didn't go to college right away. I worked a bunch of odd jobs and, you know, I worked a gas station, a nursing home, I was a maintenance man at a hotel, um, you know, and I was just like a typical Jersey Shore kind of guy, right? Graduated high school, drank, you know, worked for beer money, you know, and, and that was really all I did. Um, no real direction, no future. And uh, it was a buddy of mine. His father was a, a police captain in Bloomfield. And, you know, he had taken a liking to me. And he said, you know, just go to college, right? Like, just go to college. And, uh, you know, you can do something with yourself, you know, whether it's in criminal justice or something like that. I'll help you in any way I can. So I was like, ah, forget that. I'm not doing that shit. And, uh, you know, I just kept, you know, doing my own thing. Finally, he bothered me enough. And, uh, and then I was working, <laughs> I was working in a nursing home at one point. And like, that is where, as I started to see people sort of last step in life, and I realized like I was wasting mine at like 19, at 20, I, I, uh, I moved to New York and uh, went to John Jay College. And, uh, and I did pretty well there. I ended up uh, getting into an advanced bachelor's, master's combined program so you can get both degrees in five years. I further uh, cut that down to three years, or actually two years and 11 months, I graduated with both uh, degrees. And I graduated high enough in the class and uh, did well in the LSATs, so I got a, a half ride to Fordham. And then, so I went from, so I went Cantley in, like, in, in a matter of three years or 30 something months, I went from like getting drunk, you know, in, in a nursing, you know, after my nursing home job or at a hotel to saying, wait, I'm about to go to a top tier law school. And, and, you know, it was a, sort of a surreal experience, you know, from, uh, from white trash to the ivory tower, so to speak. <laughs> there you go. Were you, um, it sounds like you didn't have time to do anything else but study, but were you drinking through law through college and law school or were you Oh absolutely absolutely no Absolutely. No, no. I was drinking, you know, almost continuously since fifteen, uh fifteen years old. Um, and, uh, you know, I just got, I, I was working as well. I would work, uh, on the weekends. I was a security guard and, uh, I would work in like, uh, it works two 16 hour shifts on the weekends and, uh, and I do all my studying there actually. So, um, yeah, but then when I wasn't there, yeah, I was partying, you know, as, as much as I could fit in. Do you sleep? <laughs> back then, you know, back then I didn't, I was actually an insomniac as well, um, which was good when you're trying to get a lot of things done, but I didn't realize I did as, as we'll get to later in my story, I didn't realize that the, that the toll all this was taking on me. Right. So, um, but at that point it, it worked really well to get through law school and, and college fast and to, to try cases in many cases. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's like you sped through all of that and uh, it is pretty amazing even to be opening up your own law firm in your 20s. It sounds like uh, even though you started college late, you finished law school relatively young. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, and I think, you know, one joke I made to a governor once, you know, who wanted me to build something for them. I said, look, you know, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day because I wasn't there. Right. So, you know, I'm not going to waste any time. We get this thing on the road here. Um but yeah, no, I, so I, in many ways, I think I ripped through it because I was trying to almost buy time back, um, because I, you know, can't really fucked around for three years, <laughs> part of my language. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I, I say that it's normal for criminal defense attorneys to actually curse when we're not in the courtroom and to describe either our clients or our cases or just um, the stress level, all of it. So, sure. Um, 
you were in your 20s, you opened up your own law firm, you're trying high profile mm -hmm. cases. Um, I, assume I got my first one. It's actually funny. It's funny. So I'd gotten a, a few, you know, decent sized cases and then ran and I had done a, a little bit of pool work for some of the public defender's offices. And I randomly get assigned by the or asked to take a case by the Monmouth County Public Defender's office of a racketeering from a very, very uh, high profile, uh, you know, uh, leader of the Bloods out of Newark who the AG's office had done a state racketeering and they venued it in Monmouth County, right? Obviously they venued it down there because they picked one guy from Monmouth County and you get a better jury than you get in Newark. So they sent all these Newark boys down there. Um, right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's venue shopping at its best. So I get asked to take the case and the, you know, the state had already frozen all this guy's assets. That's why he didn't have his normal well-paid lawyer uh, from Newark. And, uh, you know, he was in the county jail for 700 days or something like that. And there were all kinds of problems in the case. So I brought it to him and I said, look, here's the things that are that are messed up in your case. Uh, and he said, well, I'm going to trial. And I said, OK. And uh, so I started motion practice and the motions were good enough where uh, we were able to get the attorney general's office to agree to give him time served. Um, so he walked out of Monmouth County Jail like within just a month or two of knowing me. Um, and he actually had no ride. He had no friends in freehold, as you can imagine. Um, so I picked him up when they let him out of the county jail. I drove him to Newark and we started bullshitting. And, uh, and from there, you know, all of a sudden everyone in Newark sort of knew who I was, right? And all these other areas. So then I start calling this like random guy from, from South, well, like Central Jersey. Um, and that, not you know. South, not South, because, you know, as somebody who's in South and right. in I probably wouldn't be driving up no matter what to, um, right. <laughs> to yeah, to, yeah, not going up there right. too far. Well, you know, you know was, yeah, no, it was a long drive, but it was, it turned out to be one of the most important drives ever made for my career. I didn't know it at the time. And, uh, and then from there, I just could be getting lots more cases uh, all around the state. Yeah. Did you see when, when you said you picked them up at, in Freehold at, in Monmouth County and I just like, like shook my head and I was thinking, I wonder if this is the difference between a male attorney and a female attorney, because there's lots of things I do for my clients. I mean, I really, you know, want to go out of my way uh, to provide the personal service and to let them know that like they can call my office at any time. You know, I don't prevent them from doing that. I actually uh, make it so that they can call me at any time, but I would never, ever, ever let a client into my car. It doesn't matter. Nor should you. Yeah. yeah. Nor, nor, nor should you. I mean, you know, I, I especially, you know, I, I think that, you know, the dynamics of, you know, who we serve as criminal defense lawyers, right? You know, uh, you know, you got to be, I mean, you got to be able to handle yourself and right. And obviously not saying that you're probably not a great fighter, but, you know, you're also probably five foot three and, you know, <laughs> or something you like that. So, person and yeah. know that I'm right, right. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I, I and I think it's smart. No, if my daughters ever became lawyers, I would. Well, first of all, I try to talk them out of becoming lawyers. And then if they decided to do that, I talked about doing criminal defense. And if I couldn't do that, I'd tell them, don't let anyone in the car. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. So you ended up, you know, after that amazing sort of uh, amazing win. And, and I always tell people that it's motion practice is where you're really going to. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh win cases or get cases to the point that you um, are getting offers that are too good to refuse. But That's um, right. so this is uh, how long, uh, 
Um, so you had all this success. You're still in your 20s, right? Uh, no, at this point, I'm in my th- I'm moving into my 30s, yeah. Okay, and you're still a partner with the same person? Yep. Yep. We had some lawyers working for us and, uh, you know, she'd specialized mostly divorce law and, uh, you know, sort of the funding model was, you know, let's use sort of the criminal practice and the divorce practice to fund select good personal injury cases. Right. Mm-hmm. So that way we could, you know, fund those contingencies from time to time. And that that's how we operated the firm. Okay. And how long were you in practice altogether? I think, I think it was nine, 10 years, somewhere around there. Yeah. So, and, and cause you had to be certified after seven, you need seven years to be certified. I think. I think it was five back then, to be honest, it was five, I thought. Um, but you know, I'm going back. Remember I haven't practiced since 2012. So, uh, so what sort of, uh, happened that you ended up stop practicing? Sure. So, um, well, you know, so I mentioned a little bit, you know, about uh, when I started drinking and uh, I was, you know, the very definition of a, of a functional alcoholic, you know, to the outside world, you know, life was good. I was making money, you know, and, you know, uh, things looked nice. Um, in my personal life, you know, there was, there was not much there. Every time I wasn't in trial, I was drinking. Um, and uh, so much so my law partner, God bless her, um, you know, she, when she'd cover certain cases, you know, if I'd be in another court and she'd sign the trial memos, she would literally put trials back to back to back to back if she could with me, because she knows I wouldn't drink during trial. Right. Um, I was going to ask, did she know, did the people around you, maybe the judges, everybody, I don't, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think it was a surprise. And, and yes, most people knew my law partner certainly knew. Um, and, you know, she tried her best to, to, to write the ship and, you know, we're still very close to it, but she's a godmother to my first daughter. Um, that's how close we are. Um, and, uh, you know, so there was no, listen, there was definitely no secret, you know, that John was an alcohol, uh, you know, was an alcohol, active alcoholic at the time. Um, so here I am, you know, just sort of going through life case to case to case. And, um, June of 2011. I, uh, I'm leaving a bar association event drunk, right? And, uh, as I always drove drunk candidly, and, uh, this time it would have near fatal consequences for somebody else. Um, I was drinking, I was texting, I was in a meaningless argument with, you know, somebody on the phone. It was just, it it was, it was everything toxic on the back end of a bender and, uh, and the car started to veer to the right because I'm busy being drunk and, and looking at my phone and doing all these different things. I hear two really loud booms. Um, and I see a bunch of dust behind me and I didn't for a, a very brief period of time. I didn't, I, I, I don't know what I hit. So I left and I drove to the first police station that was closest, um, which was Maniloking because the accident happened, the, the, see, my crimes occurred. I committed my crimes in Lavalette and I'm very, you know, you'll hear me correct myself a lot. Like, you know, the, 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 there was obviously a car accident where I hit a pedestrian. Um, but like that was, those are crimes I committed. That was just not a car accident where, you know, someone, you know, sideswipe somebody that was, that was, a, those were crimes that I committed. So I drive you to the police station. The car. You didn't stop no. the car. No, I drive to the police station. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, you didn't stop the car. You didn't, you initially didn't know what you hit. When, when did you, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but when did you learn 
that you hit a person? You know, I, I think I, I've, I've gone over this in my head for 12 years now. When did I, when did I, you know, looking back, it had to be just a, few, a minute, two minutes after I left that scene. And, and where I, I remember being drunk behind that wheel and I'm looking at the windshield. I'm still not looking at the road, by the way. I'm looking at the, at the windshield. And it's like, you know, you never, you know, you, you, I'm looking at the, the circular break in the window and the windshield. And I'm like, holy shit, I hit somebody. But now I'm not at the scene anymore. What the fuck do I do? So I drive to the police station. It's the next thing I do. Um, I mean, that's what a drunk, you know, <laughs> it doesn't make sense today. But at the time, it seemed like it made sense. Well, um, it's, it's somebody who's drunk, but also a lawyer. So you have like some knowledge, right? I mean, you went to the police station. Yeah, but you know, and and the thing, the, the sad thing is, you know, this was this was the the conclusion of a twenty year or the end, the beginning of the end of a twenty year battle with active alcoholism and some of that undiagnosed trauma we touched upon in the beginning of the of of the interview. And uh, so I drive to the Manaloking Police Station, stop the car there. I leave all my stuff in there, right? Because I'm going in. And remember, I told you I heard two booms, right? The first was I would learn was the person I I hit. The second was. In Lavalette, they used to have these, there were no sidewalks, they have these raised drains. So mm -hmm. I, apparently, I would learn later, I hit the person, then I ran over the raised drain. And that becomes important right now. So I parked the car right in front of the police station on Downer Avenue in Mandaloking Road. Leave all my shit in there and uh, begin walking towards the door. And if I never look back at the car, Melissa, I, 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 I just walk into the police station and, and I, I get arrested and life, you know, the, the second half of this never happens. But I look back at the car and I see the damage to the car and I went into a complete panic. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I did any, there's no great cover up here, right? There's no well thought out, you know, cover up thing. I walked away and I left the car in front of the police station with all my stuff in there. Here's and the then, evidence. Yeah, you know. the whole car, but that wasn't, I mean, I, that, I, I wish my thought was that. I just walked away. And, you know, I was already having deep, deep depression and other problems, uh, you know, and obviously wa washed uh, a wash in alcohol. And I decided that I was going to tie a few things up and I had a legally registered 45 at home and then I was going to kill myself. That was the plan. And it's so funny because people, it, 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 funny is a bad word, but it's like so, it, it's so funny to say now because I can't believe that was my life then. And that was a, that was a logical plan to me, and I said, "All right, well, you know, you know, I, 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 there's no way I could deal with God forbid I killed somebody, etc." So, I, I stayed on the bender for three more days, and towards the third day, I started to clear up. My law partner, who I told you about, you know, uh, uh, was was really the impetus behind not killing myself, and. Uh, then I, on the third day, I called a, I called a lawyer friend of mine. Um, I think it was on your, well, his father, uh, I called his father, Don, Donald and Jonathan Lemira. I think I had Richie Lemira on the show. Richie's a good, good friend, as are all the Lemiros are very close friends. They're like family to me. Um, yeah. They guided me through a very, very difficult time in my life this time. And this time I'm telling you about. And I called Don and I called John and uh, John and Don came over. And I said, look, this is what happened. Go, you know, I was still 
probably drunk when I was talking to them, actually. And then when they came to my house and I said, go surrender me. And that was the third or third day in, or maybe the fourth day in. I said, go surrender me. Um, so Don, God bless him. He went to the Ocean County prosecutor's office, tried to surrender me. They had nothing to surrender me to. There's no warrant. I, so, I was going to ask, was there a warrant? And I know my mind yeah. is behind you on this story, but um, did you ever call an ambulance or call 911? Was was no. there any? So there was no. Um, nope. So, nope. so um, Don went to the prosecutor's office and there's no warrant. But, but but I mean, you know, this wasn't exactly the uh, you, you didn't exactly have to be, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes to figure out what was going on here. Right. Like John's car is sitting in front of the police station damaged. John is nowhere to be seen. Um, and then what happened was, again, I said I lied my way out of it. Or let me go back. I lied to delay time. And, you know, I had a great, great friend, Melissa, a guy, uh, a guy who was more like a brother to me than anything else. Um and he's watching me. He watched me deteriorate for a long time. And, you know, he was concerned about my suicide. And he said, John, he goes, look, just buy yourself. Like, I'll say I did it, you know, until we figure this whole thing out. So I said, sure, go ahead. Because I figured I'd be dead in a few days anyway. And then I would just write a suicide note. This is where your this is where your head goes when you have unchecked, when you don't check your mental illness and you try to drown it in booze and substances and those sorts of things. Right. All these things I'm telling you. Right. Right. Are, are, None of it makes are, are, sense. No, it's not. I mean, that's the thing. But like I said, this was no great cover-ups, no crime of the century. So my friend goes in, takes the hit, right? Says it says he was driving that night, right? And uh, and obviously everybody knows he wasn't driving that night, right? Um, Lemuro's trying saying, "Look, the, here's here's John. With, you know, put the cuffs on him. He's ready to surrender." They don't generate a warrant or anything until uh, it's like a week later. So I'm like hanging out you know, waiting to be told when to surrender to my crimes. Mm -hmm. And so did you go into custody at that time when the week of the warrant being issued? Oh, yeah. So I was, I was waiting around. Um, and most of my time candidly was consumed, you know, uh, you know, desperately trying to figure out if I had killed somebody. Right. So, because I didn't know what the status was of the person I had hurt. And thank the Lord, by the way, thank just, because, you know, you know for, for the listeners, right, the person, thank God, recovered, is not in a wheelchair, went on to, you know, get a master's degree and do all kinds of great things in her life. No thanks to me, by the way. Everything I did was make that worse and nearly killed this poor person. So, um, you know, God really gave me a blessing as well as giving, obviously, them a blessing. But, uh, you know, God really made – really – you know, I, I always tell people if you don't believe in God after hearing what I did – Right. And how this person should have been dead. Then then I don't know what would ever make you believe in God, because there's no logical reason that person should be alive. And, you know, it's been a very, very tough thing for me to live with. But I caused it. So to answer your question, yes, on on the following frozen like a week later, you know, I what get a call. For the week? I mean, are you um, I understand what you were doing for the first few days, the first few days you were planning your end. And yeah, I was on a bender. Right. And doing all that. Yep. And then there came a time where uh, something switched. You know? Well, so so partially, right? And I'm and I'm uh, because like it wasn't like my law partner showed up and I said, "Well, suicide's off the table now, right?" Because you're here, right? I kind of told her I was gonna. You know, it was fine, right? Because she had 
you know, personal experience with a suicide that really affected her. And she knew that she pulled on those heartstrings with me that I would bite. And because she's a very good advocate, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and an even better friend. Um, but uh, yeah, so I wasn't, so for me, suicide wasn't off the table. I just told her it was off the table. So I, my plans were, were only delayed, not derailed. Mm-hmm. So, um, because again, it wasn't necessarily the, the, it wasn't the arrest that I, that was the, the catalyzing event to suicide. I wasn't, that wasn't the, the issue was for years, I knew I was an alcoholic for years. I knew I was falling apart. And for years, the, the way I, I dealt with that and why I didn't do anything about it was to say, well, I'm not hurting anybody else. So that whole identity was shattered. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, but just sticking with recovery for a second, you know, before this ever happened, you know, I, I knew I was going down a path so, so bad. I, you know, I, I went to see a judge friend of mine in Middlesex County and I said, look, I'm falling off, man. It was probably April or May when this thing happened in June and, uh, or March or April, I should say, because a few months before. And he referred me to lawyer's assistance. They did such a wonderful, wonderful job, but I was so far off the reservation, right? Like I needed, at that point in my life, I needed to be locked in a rehab. That's what I needed with, with co-occurring treatment. So the warrant gets issued. They say, go surrender yourself. I show up at the sheriff's department. I, you know, get printed. And then I have bond waiting for me. And these days we still had cash bail. So I, they had a $150,000 bond on me, which I thought was kind of surprising because it was my first offense. And I certainly wasn't a flight risk unless you count uh, going to the grave flight. Um, so in any event, you know, I bonded right out. Um, so I never set foot in the county jail. Uh, and, uh, and then that began, uh, well, it was the beginning of the end of my law practice. So I had to tie up the law practice. I had to somehow try to stay sober. I, or, you know, get sober, excuse me. I had to figure out if I was really going to kill myself or not. Um, I had to figure out like, have I killed somebody? Like, have I made someone, you know, someone going to be on a ventilator their whole life? Like, what the fuck did I do here? Right. Mm-hmm. And the worst part about that, and I deserve every bad thing that's happened. So don't, I don't want anyone to think that, you know, I'm a, uh, they should feel bad for me. They shouldn't. I put myself in every one of these situations. Um, like every minute you recover, what you, the shitty things you do become clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. So it's like this, this weird thing where you think, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, getting sober, I'm doing these things. And then all the horrible things are now no longer these foggy things you're looking at. They're real. Right. Um, so anyway, so, so I'm, I'm wrapping up my law practice mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm wrapping up the law practice and uh, yeah, I still tried. I, my clients wanted me to still try cases. So I still tried a few cases. Um, I argued one a case before the New Jersey Supreme court while I was out on $150,000 bond, which I'm, I don't know. That's like the old Barry bonds, like home run record with the asterisk, right? Like, you know, it's, it's something that might've happened. It might've been like very interesting, but nobody wants to ever have claimed that record. Um, and, uh, and then I pled guilty at my first, I asked Don, I said, Don, get me the, get, just plead me at the first thing. In fact, plead me pre-indictment. I don't care. Just get me to plead because accepting responsibility was what reco- was, is, is the cornerstone of recovery. So I knew I could never do that. Um, and, and I desperately wanted to apologize, but you know, I was never able to speak to the person I had hurt. So John, let me ask you this. Um, 
were you from the time that you turned yourself in, we'll say in processed and then released, were you in active recovery at that point? Were you, did you stop drinking? Do you, so I'm going to ask you, this is usually a question I ask all my clients to determine whether I think they're really sober. Do you have a sobriety date of what you, is, is the day you stopped drinking? Is it that date? No, no, the day, no, my sobriety date's March 16th uh, of 2012. Um, the accident, the the crimes occur on June seventeenth of twenty eleven. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, though getting sober. Was, remember, I'm someone who drank if things were good, bad, or otherwise. So imagine under these circumstances, um, I tried. I'd string together a little sobriety. It would. I'd drink. I and it would happen again and again and again. And then what happened was, it's interesting enough. I went to a place, Seashore Family Services in Brick, and. And I'm like, you know, I better just go to like inpatient here, right? So I go there and I tell them I want to go to inpatient and they do their assessment. And they said, well, the, uh, I remember they asked, they said, so how many, uh, you know, how many drinks do you have a week? I'm like, no, 80, 90. And I remember the, 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 the woman at the, she was you know, probably in, you know, like 21 years old, right? Fresh out of social work school, right? Getting her clinical out. She like, no, no, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't ask per month. Or, you know, every bottom of the week is like 80, 90, right? Um, and, and basically what they diagnosed me with was like a whole series of like major depression, all these other psychological issues from probably trauma-filled past and ob an obvious chronic alcoholism. So they said, John, we don't have a bed like that for you. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what do I do? And I said, well, uh, uh, and I wasn't going to do like the Florida thing or anything. You know what I mean? I wasn't going to do any of that stuff. I said, so what do I do? And they said, well, you can start in our IOP program, intensive outpatient. I said, all right, let's sign up. So that is actually where things started to get better um, because you get a therapist at IOP as well. And I never really had a therapist that I was attached to. Yeah, I was going to ask whether with the sobriety you address the mental health because. So, that, so that's actually, it's, it's a perfect question because I, once I started getting that level of therapy, and then I also saw a therapist on site. Now I would only go to a psychologist and I'm not, I'm not down on anyone who has to take medication for mental health issues. Right. But for me, I was terrified that I was going to trade booze for something else. Mm -hmm. Right. So I said, I'm going to try to beat this thing without any pills at all. Um, and then they, it was funny because my doctor, my primary gave me Lexapro and I took it wrong. I took it when I thought I was sad instead of taking it every day. I was like, this thing, so I'm not taking this anymore. And, um, but, uh, but anyway, so once I started getting that therapy, right, then things started to come into focus. So once I got the therapy, it was easier to stop drinking. And then I paired that with AA meetings, lots of them. So I'd be at IOP and AA on, on times I wasn't at IOP, right, just to sort of stay grounded. And I was doing well for a while. Um, IOP was a challenge though. IOP is supposed to be whatever it is, 12 weeks or whatever it's supposed to be. And, uh, you know, mine was like 20 weeks or something because they were, I kept pissing hot, right? They get with alcohol. So God bless them. They didn't throw me out. They just said, okay, we're going to start you back at phase one, whatever the phase is. So, and thank God that the social worker there, the therapist name was Laurel DeLuca. I mean, you know, if I, if I could ever thank her today, I mean, she changed my whole life. Um, you know, she was a therapist that was assigned to me. So anyway, so I string together some sobriety um, and then, yeah, they indict me, which I expected. Uh, and then I try to plead guilty at the first court appearance, but the state wasn't ready. So just then, so we're clear, you one count indictment, 
Oh no, no, no! They charge me. They, you know, they, they, you know, how indictments are. They indict you for things, or anything under the sun. They could have indicted me for. So, like, it was, you know, leaving the scene of an accident with serious bodily injury, aggravated assault, uh, uh, like hindering apprehension. They could be a witness tampering, um, which you know, whatever. So, um, so I said, look, just plead me guilty. You know, let's just get me a deal. The leaving uh, the scene was what you were pleading guilty to. Uh, we, I ended up pleading guilty to leaving the scene of an accident, right, for the crime of hurting the person, and then hindering apprehension for lying about it. And then the state wanted to plead a witness tampering as well. I said, it's fine because the hindering and the witness tampering, there is no real witness tampering. It was a hindering. They're going to merge anyway. It, it does, if that makes you happy so I can move on, fine. So that's why I, that, so I did that. Uh, and but more importantly than that, to be honest, the, the the most interesting legal part of this whole thing to me, because just a standard, you know, addict hurts somebody, right, and goes to prison, is the civil piece of it. So what happened was, and, you know, God bless Don Lemiro, I'm like, I, I said, Don, you know, I want to call Geico and tell my insurance company, tell them everything that happens, I get these people some money. And Don's like, yeah, uh, we don't have a deal yet. You can't be doing any of that stuff. And and Don, you know, and Don's, you know, was just such a good man. But he, but I would fight with him all the time. I said, listen, I'm not gonna, because you look, you you practice law. You know, the popular wisdom in this cases, in these kind of cases, is you drag the civil suit out. You drag it out forever. And if the victim needs money, right? Eventually, they 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 relent to a better plea agreement to the prosecutor, and then they get their money, and then you do that, right? That's that's standard. Well, what defense? Yeah, not only with. that. I mean, as your as your criminal defense attorney, I would say you can't give a statement to the insurance company. Oh yeah, it's going to be yep. used against you. Like, yep. I mean, I have a standard letter to the insurance company that says, you know, because due to the criminal matter, my client will not be providing any statements. I mean. <laughs> I mean, I understand what you're saying about the effects of the civil, but I, I, not even going that far. I'm like, you're not giving a statement. And then, yeah. you know, and it's hard because, you know, I'm sure Don still wanted to protect you from yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, Don, like every lawyer is like, how many CYA letters do I got to write this guy? You know, this guy's my friend. Why Why is he breaking my chops like this? Right. Um, but, uh, but Don you know, uh, uh, I eventually, I eventually uh, uh, harassed him enough uh, where he got us settled up with Geico. Um, so they got the whole policy, thank God, before anything else happened, right? Like before I had a deal, none of that stuff, right? Because, I mean, I can't build a time machine to stop what happened, right? So this is the next best thing. I, I was just trying to do anything I could to 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 help, right? Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, so I plead guilty, um, and uh, the deal six years, three for the leaving the scene, three for the hindering. Um, state was going to – state uh, asked for consecutive sentences. I had hoped they'd run them concurrent. Got the sentencing, they didn't run them concurrent. Right? So, they were um, flat sentences, right? They were. They were. But, you know, I you know, the uh, – well, yes, they were, and I'll just leave it at that. I know this might be too much technicality, but um, there was no mandatory amount of time. You didn't have to serve, you know. Uh, no, no, no. But the misnomer, the misnomer that every defense lawyer and I every but many defense lawyers tell their client, "Oh, you have a three flat, you'll be out in nine months." Like that's not how the real world works. Um, you have to be very, and I didn't know that until I was in prison. You have to be very, very, very concerned about that back number, particularly the higher profile of an inmate you are. 
mm-hmm. because the prospect of someone like me, a high profile gang lawyer getting parole with no political connections is like near zero. Mm-hmm. So how much you went in on a six year sentence? Yeah. And then of course, everybody just told you, right? I'm happy to eat my words at this point because I go up before the parole board at 16 months, 17 months. And, uh, and to my surprise, they let me out. Um, but I had nowhere to go. Um, and God bless the parole board. You know, you know, people complain about the parole board. I mean, the parole board is one of those places that really saved my life. You know, when I spoke to them, I said, look, I'm going to be coming out. If you let me out to a whole new world of challenges. I have bankrupt, no law license, um, no home, right? I have nowhere to live. My house was foreclosed upon. Um, I said, I need you to order IOP again because it's the only thing that ever worked for me. And I have no money to pay for it on my own because I have nothing. I have nothing. Um, and God bless them. They they let me out and they, they ordered me to IOP as I asked. Um, and your license was suspended at that point? Was, was Yeah, no, your license, your license is automatically suspended uh, when you plead guilty to a felony. Um, it hadn't been, you're, you're presently disbarred, correct? Correct. So that occurred after you came out of jail. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, actually. Um, so I'll tell you that in one second. So, so I, anyway, so I end up, uh, uh, they agree to parole me. I parole out to a law school buddy's house um, in Hoboken, which is not really where a drunk goes to get sober, if any of your listeners know where Hoboken is. There's like 98 bars in a 1.25 square mile house, uh, 1.25 square mile town. So, um, but there was a lot of great recovery there. And again, the parole board was wonderful uh, as far as they were hard. But they were so fair and they gave me the tools I needed. I had a wonderful parole officer, a guy named Peter Sandy, who just, you know, really cared about recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so these people who were, you know, just in my life, you know, all were, were key components to my any success I have today. Um, but no, actually, so I get out in October of 13 and, uh, you know, and I end up at some point in January, I think it was, the Star Ledger ran a story that I was out. Um, and, uh, they ran a story about it. And then all of a sudden I get like a FedEx disbarment complaint from ethics. So here I am on parole, going through bankruptcy, trying to stay sober and go to meetings, go <laughs> do all my parole stuff, work. Um, and I ended up representing myself before the DRB and, uh, and then I won six too. It's the disciplinary review board for the- Oh year. yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. The disciplinary no. review board. So I won <laughs> six to two, um, they agreed to a three-year perspective suspension, which would have been like a five-year suspension if you added up all the time. But only the Supreme Court, right, can hand out discipline. Um, so the Supreme Court takes the case and gives me a hearing. So I knew we had a problem right away, right, that we had to go to a hearing. And then I had a lawyer for that one, which uh, a wonderful guy represented me for, for free, referred to me by a, by a federal judge friend, actually. And uh, the guy did just a wonderful job um, named Tim Donahue from up in West Orange. And uh, I, I jo- and we lost by one vote um, before the Supreme Court. And, we're just I'm, and I joke with Tim. I said, you know, when I did this shit on my own, you know, we were fine. But I'm only joking. Tim did an absolutely wonderful job. And then sort of the joke about it that it was, you know, I, if you add up all the votes for me and all the votes against me, I was like Hillary Clinton. I'd won the popular vote, but I lost all the votes that mattered. So <laughs> Right. And you know, you do know, like I would say, like once the Supreme Court said they were reviewing it, you know, you weren't winning. 
right? It was going to be tough. It was going to be tough. But we, we we got within one vote, right? We got so it's a four two decision. So had it been three three, it would have deferred the decision below. And what's fascinating about the case is that the we'll talk about a talk about a shitty week. So I find out I'm getting disbarred. The decision comes down February fifteen. And like March of March of 15, my first round of monthly payments for my chapter 13 bankruptcy were to begin. So I knew I was never going to have the income I once had, or at least that was, was in my head at the time. I would never have the same income I would once have. And now I have to pay this um, and try to stay sober and try to be on parole and do all these things. Um, again, all situations I caused for myself, but I'm just telling you what was in my head, uh, at, you know, at this particular time in my life. Right. It is a lot. And you remain sober at that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Up till today. <laughs> right. I mean, I just it it it's just a really uh, interesting and amazing story that once you are dealing with the mental health and the sobriety, that even when you probably had greater stresses at that point in your life than sure. ever before, you know, and uh, probably all the uh, hardworking jobs that you had prior to college and law school. I mean, you always know how to work. You know, you weren't making the same money, but you know how to work, which is a sounds silly, but it's a skill set that some people don't have, you know. No, it is. It is you know, and the other thing that, you know, I, I haven't touched on because, I mean, it's just so it, – it's just always there to me. So sometimes I forget when I'm doing – you know, I'm doing media, you know, like there's never there's never a day where I don't feel horrible for what I did that night. Not horrible for – having no law license. I mean, look at, you know, if you were to look at me today and say, oh, the guy's been on stage with President Obama and President Trump and worked with half the governors in the country and worked with major businesses and built program, you know, like people would say, oh, it looks like it worked out for him. Everything's cool for him. It's not really the case. And and I, I, I go back to, and you might've heard this story in another context, you know, when my first daughter was born, uh, when Vienna was born, born here at GW Hospital in DC. And, um, it was the greatest moment of, of my life for like a minute, 40 seconds. And then my thought went immediately to the fact that that the father of the person I hit once held their child the same exact way I held Vienna that day. And I nearly took this poor guy off the count. And like, and that was supposed to be the happiest moment of my life, right? So, so it's never not there. And then it happened again when my other daughter, Kalina, was born. And, uh, and, and again, no one should feel bad for me, but I think that there's sort of this belief that, you know, you, you commit crimes, you go to prison and, you know, you never give a fuck after that. And that's just not the way it is, Melissa. Right. Well, it's yeah. sobering. It's like with every, uh, piece of joy that you have and you should, uh, have that joy. Um, I'm sure that's part of your sobriety and the ability to keep maintaining it is to know the, to remember and to acknowledge the the true uh, ramifications of your actions. That's right. That's right. And, and you know what? It, not minimize it in any way. And my, it's exactly right. And my worst day, feeling as bad as I did for what I caused, is still better than the worst days that I caused that person I hurt and their family. And, I, and you know, and that never, it's so funny, you know, in the sense that people say, John, you got to let it go. You have to do those things. Go get another job. We don't have to talk about this shit anymore. And, uh, and, and I don't talk about it because I'm, because my job, I talk about it because I hope it helps somebody, right? Because there's there are listeners you're going to have, especially with, with with your vast listenership, right? Who are going through something like I was going through, have a friend going through something like I was going through. Um, and my hope is that hearing this story and maybe the work that I've done, 
will help them make a different decision than I made and not not do what I did. Right. And that's why I do this. Yeah, I mean, the question really always comes up at this point is, is uh, what do we recommend when people are struggling? We know that uh, mental health and alcoholism is a huge issue among lawyers. Um, we know the, st- the statistics of um, alcoholism among lawyers, as well as uh, mental health, suicide, depression. Um, you know, there's a large percentage of attorneys that don't even want to be practicing law anymore because of the level of stress. And um, I guess, like, you know, whenever I get to this part of the conversation, I always want to say, like, what can we do? Where should people go? I mean, I know their services, but, you know, um, what would have made a difference in your life at that time? You know, it's it's hard to calculate. I, I don't, I don't know. I think that, I think, I, I want to say, and it's not the judge's responsibility to do this, by the way, but because my career is the only thing that I was doing with myself, right? At that point, now I'm married, I have children. Back then, I wasn't anything. Like, I had nothing like that, no family. Um, when I needed help, I went to a judge and the judge got me help, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that because that was who mattered to me in my world. I think it's going to vary from person to person, right? But, you know, the one thing about the stress of law, you know, people always say, John, you know, if they let you practice again, you know, what are you going to do? And so, well, I'm going to get my law license back just to have it. But I don't, I'm not going back to trying cases, right? I'm not going back to that, to, to that world. No, I never, I wouldn't. What, I mean, what I may do, maybe I'd, you know, do like a legal services nonprofit because I have access to various philanthropies and things of that nature. Um, And the networks I have are much better now than I had in practicing law candidly. I mean, the ironic part of this like whole story, right, is like, is, yeah, we, we haven't right, even gotten right. to the ironic part. Right, yet. the ironic part is that here I was, I didn't know a, a single politician and I didn't know anyone who, you know, any policymakers. And, you know, since 2014, you know, I've worked with, you know, governors all across the country. Um, I helped in New Jersey to help Governor McGreevy, former Governor McGreevy, execute his vision to to build a statewide reentry program. Um, and that uh, allowed also Volunteers of America in South Jersey, who have been doing wonderful work for decades, right? A whole new funding stream, right? That came through the, the, the grant that started the New Jersey Reentry Corporation. We had five former governors on our board. I was asked to be the executive director of it, which I actually initially said no. And then I said yes. Um, and then I, I built a bunch of sites for the NJRC. And then I was asked to come to DC in 2017, end of 2017. Uh, by uh, the attorneys for Charles and David Koch, right? Charles and David Koch, uh, David, God rest his soul. They were big supporters of many libertarian causes and were big supporters of criminal justice reform, uh, public safety focused criminal justice reform, employment for people with, with records for the right people, right? Who are trying to actually better themselves and can add value to businesses and, uh, and so many other wonderful causes. So they brought me to DC and, uh, and that that was how I ended up working with President Trump. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely and again, you're like you're such a great uh, storyteller. But yet what sometimes you skip and I'm like, wait, 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 I want to know. And I think people want to know how did you go? And and so I have like five different thoughts at the same time. So I'm going to sure. organize. Let me organize. Fire away. So my first thought 
and I'm going to do it in the order that they had, was when we were talking about getting your law license back and practicing again, I, I want it clear that I love practicing law. And when I say, no, 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 don't do it, the level of stress in being a criminal trial attorney um, and to running a business and a practice, I would say, um, is what I don't always recommend. Individual cases, helping my clients when I am able to uh, uh, advocate for them in a way that gets them the, the right result and a fair result, I love that. But I got to tell you, I'm exhausted by the end. <laughs> and I think I'm, 50, I'm I, 52. And I think I don't know if I could do this for 20 more years or 15 more years, you know. And I, and I loved it. I loved it, too. And, you know, and, you know, if there's any part of the practice of law I miss, it's that, right? It's the right. ability to, to help someone, you know, either protect them from an injustice, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, or or helping someone get their life back together, or all the different things we do as defense lawyers. Uh, so I definitely miss that. But I've been very lucky to to be in the position I am, right. and I feel like you know God has put me in this p particular position, and uh, and and you know to me, I don't know that that. I want with, you know, a four-year-old and a one-year-old that, that I'm going to go, I, I would be interested in going back and rocking and rolling in courtrooms. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I have no, I have no doubt that I could do it. Um, you know, but I don't, I don't know, but I think I, I mean, I do think I would like the option. Right. And I also think I would like the insurance policy, so to speak of having that where I could, I mean, candidly with, with what I do now, I could, I could, practice law and be like a government affairs lawyer if I needed to because of the the type of things I do today, right? I don't have to go back into a courtroom and slug it out. Correct. But but um, I think, you know, you worked at something, you know, you earned that law degree. And, uh, and uh, I do think that there should be a path to obtain your license again. So I, I hope that whether you use it or not. Um, but what's interesting is, is that you have this platform, you've made a huge difference with uh, uh, re-entry programs and working with governors. And so the real question is what happened from, you know, when you were released, how did you end up connecting with former Governor McGreevy? How did you end up sort of having this platform? Um, and then kind of in the context of this, as well as your sobriety and your mental health, you really do talk about um, your belief in God and how thankful you are for where you are and sort of in the, I almost would say in the opportunity to, uh, you know, continue do the work that you're doing right now. And uh, I don't know if you can address like the spirituality and, and, and did you have that belief in God beforehand? And it just- No, I'll start, I'll start there. No, no. God was someone that, you know, my mentally ill alcoholic uh, uh, mind blamed for everything that went wrong in my childhood. Anytime something didn't go my way, it was all, it was all God, everybody else's fault, but mine, but anything good that happened was all me, of course. Right. That, that, that's about as logical as that's about, that makes about as much sense as my cover up, Right. Yeah, um, like a trial attorney though. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, and then, and then, you know, drown that in alcohol. And uh, so, you know, so no, I was, I was not, uh, uh, God was, was not a friend of mine in my view when this all was going on. So anyway, so I get out 
And I had a job. I was working at a at a company in Trenton because I knew the CEO. Uh, you know, doing you know office type work, things of that nature. And uh, but I couldn't do anything that was good for my soul. So when I was practicing, I did a lot of work for the NAACP in Middlesex County. Right, I would help mm-hmm. them with civil rights cases, old expungement clinics, etc. Uh, for you know for family members of their members. Uh, but I couldn't do that because I had no license. So I saw something in prison because you see, like you know. I think a lot of people go to prison, they come out, they complain about everything in prison. Like prison is not supposed to be the Hilton. Okay. So I'm not one of those people that says, you know, the food sucks. Well, yeah, the food does suck. Right. And it, it's, it's actually crazy when you when I watch prison shows, when they show prisons around the world, usually the food is better in the prisons and those in those prisons than where I was. Right. But like that, that's prison, right? Don't come to prison if you don't want to deal with that. Right. Um, the beds are too, you know, on the TV shows, they always show beds with like cots with an actual mattress. And I'm like, right, right. What New Jersey prisons look like. No, but the one thing that really stuck out at me in prison, I saw the very worst in some people, but I also the very best. Right. But I also got a great understanding of why, some of the things go the way they go when it comes to recidivism and reoffense. And I, I remember just sitting there watching people go out to parole and halfway houses and then be sent back for some unpaid ticket, unpaid fine, unpaid fee, right? And I'm like, how the hell could this actually be a thing, right? Um, and it's interesting, it happened to me. So I had a house with rocks in brick, right? Because I was an alcoholic, so I wasn't going to mow my lawn ever. So I, that's actually why I picked the house because I thought rocks looked cool and I knew that I'd be busy getting drunk and I would never have to mow it. And uh, so what happened was I go to prison in brick. Everybody knows me in brick, right? It's not a big place. Um, and like weeds start growing through these rocks, right? And I'm like, and I don't know this is happening until one day I'm told I have court and I have video court. And this video court was not as common back then. And I'm like, the hell could I have court for? So I get there and like the Bricktown seal is on the thing. And I'm like, no, I know I have no, no, no business here. And it turns out that some code enforcement officer wrote a ticket to the house that says, you know, John never cut his weeds. And then John didn't go to court because John was busy at Bayside State Prison, you know, mopping floors and doing things like that. So they should have warned for my arrest and suspended my driver's license because I didn't cover, cut my weeds. And I, and I remember, like, and I get there and didn't matter. I knew most of the lawyers are new to me. They said, John, will handle it. Didn't matter. They paid the $30 court cost or whatever. But it it struck me that if this could happen to me with all the advantages that I have, what is a guy to know how to read? What is he or she going through? And then something else a little deeper than that happened over and over is that nobody asked me for money, but nearly everybody asked me for a job, right? And I didn't even know I was getting out. And I was you know, I had my own problems. Right. But people started saying, look, John, I need, I wish I could get a job. I don't know how to get a job. I can't get my license. Can't do all these things. So I never forgot that. So I parole out and, uh, and I learned that McGreevy is doing uh, like County jail ministry or something like that. And then doing a program, a workforce program with the mayor of Jersey city at the time. Well, he's still a mayor, Steve Fulop. So I just reached out to Steve Fulop. I didn't know anybody. I said, Hey, look, this is who I am. And I want to be connected to whoever's in charge of that program. I didn't know it was McGreevy, actually. And God bless Steve Phillip. He just hit reply and, and copied McGreevy on it He's and said, Jim, can He's you talk to this great. guy? He's a friend Where of mine. He, I mean, he came to my bar um installation as president, but he's just a he's such an amazing guy. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me. 
Yeah, so that's what he did. So anyway, so then Jim McGreevy and I started chatting. And uh, and I said, look, you know, I really just want to put my own lawyer buddies together to stop these old fines, fees, warrants. And we got to talking. And Jim had this great vision of a, of a statewide reentry organization. And we got to talking and we exchanged ideas and we took it to Governor Christie. And, uh, and that's how it was built. That's how that part was built. And that, that work, because we got so many people jobs, again, got me noticed in D.C., and then they brought me to then uh, the Cokes brought me to DC, and uh, and I led a lot of big projects there, and you know, and then by chance I ended up just working very closely. I was in the White House many many times, in the Oval Office many times, um, on TV with President Trump on Second Chance hiring, in in the Oval Office when the First Step Act was signed, um, because it was just a great coalition of like Republican and Democrat people who came together to try to do the right thing to make sure that people who wanted jobs but had records could get them in a way that made sense for employers. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I talked to you briefly, um, and uh, former retired Superior Court Judge Mark Sanson had the same philosophy that, you know, uh, people would want to work if they could get jobs, and they can't get jobs. They can't get jobs if there's open cases. They can't get jobs if there's felony convictions. And, uh, you know, kind of on that same line of that same idea created the jobs program to have companies like the casinos, you know, some of the hospitals uh, employ people in recovery court or who have prior convictions. So, um, and it, it really is a shame of like the, the, the court costs and the fines that really in the end um, it's an uphill battle for so many clients. Um, I'm, I always, I have this story where my dad had somebody who worked for his business who didn't have a license. And my dad had like vending machines and cigarette machines, Coca-Cola machines all over North Jersey. So he needed his, his staff, his employers, employees to be able to drive. And one of his employees who he worked for him for years and years could not get his license back. And my dad finally was like, I am going to go to all these municipal courts and figure this out. And I was not a lawyer yet. I might have been in law school, but I was not practicing in New Jersey. Um, And he went to all the municipal courts and he paid um, his employees um, fines and costs, which equaled like $4,000 at the time. My dad paid every single court. And then they went to Motor Vehicle Commission to get his license back. And you know what happened? Hmm. He couldn't get his license because in addition to the municipal court fines, then there are motor vehicle commission surcharge fines. Oh yeah, that's right. So they're in two different places. And this was an individual who did not have a high school graduate, a uh, high school diploma. And he was a really good worker, a really good employee, but he, you know, and when my dad went to the motor vehicle commission and they still said he still owed another four to $5,000 in surcharge. And my dad was like, this is, I mean, he did, I don't even think he did it. He was like, this is crazy. The system is crazy that, you know, those are the penalties and then somebody can never drive in a state that you have to be able to drive in to work. Sure. No, you're, I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're the nail on the head, you know, and, and I, we've attacked this issue in many different ways, you know, in Mississippi, for example, you know, we passed some laws and the governor at the time, 
who's a very, very hard on crime guy, very smart on crime guy named Phil Bryant. And uh, I remember being sent to Mississippi to talk to him about these bills. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know, how the hell are you going to send me of all this? It's going to be like my cousin Vinny, you know what I mean? Sending me to, to Mississippi here. But uh, the people of Mississippi were wonderful. The policymakers were wonderful. You know, you have deep faith in that state. And I think that, you know, you have a, a real a, 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 a real prioritization of work. So Mississippi at one point when we passed this, uh, we passed a law where people could check in to parole at, uh, via FaceTime. This is before the pandemic and all those things, right? And like, it was like Mississippi and California were the only two like innovative places in America where you could check in with your parole officer by statute via FaceTime, right? But like, it was, it's a work barrier. And you can't get anywhere in Mississippi, right? And then, and then, of course, then they started abolishing some of the some of the fines and fees issues in the state. So that's how I got my start in, in doing this work. I got lucky. I got noticed doing a, a good job, and you know, and I, I, I hope a good job. And uh, and then, you know, the it was interesting, you know, with the with I, I had previously met and been on stage with President Trump, excuse me, President Obama, um, but I did a lot more work from the criminal justice perspective of president trump it was interesting because president trump you know if you ever watch interviews with him you know he talks he will talk from time to time about his brother fred who died of alcoholism right and how trump doesn't drink and i think that's probably why he you know probably why you know he was uh, as open to me as he was when we talk about criminal justice issues and as, as canly welcoming as he was and uh it was the interesting thing you know not to put politics aside because I don't, you know, I, 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 that's not what I'm here to talk about, but like the one thing I think the Trump effect from the first step act, which was the big federal legislation that he surprisingly people never thought he'd sign it signed and actually championed the big, the Trump effect was that hard Republican governors around the state around the country would now do smart criminal justice reform in a broader sense because they had political cover to do it, mm -hmm. right? So, like the Trump effect on that part of the criminal justice system, like no one's ever captured it. But I would have, I would go to states that you know would never have spoken to me about criminal justice reform after Trump wanted to, President Trump wanted to do it, and now they were open to listen, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that uh that that effect has helped more people rebuild their lives more people with justice involvement rebuild their lives than than probably anybody else ever could because he was the most unlikely person one would think to champion such an issue but he did now of course if you stepped out of line the laws that he would pass would you know would would bury you under the prison right but but at the same time, he was a big, my impression of him having, you know, been in the White House, you know, many times was, I mean, this is a person who who really cared about this particular, particularly addiction, right? Because mm -hmm. he, he saw it firsthand. Right. Just like Governor Christie, right? Governor Christie has a great, per, uh, you know, it tells a great story of a personal experience he has with a dear friend who passed away from opioids. And Governor Christie, another Republican that's been, a tremendous champion of addiction, public safety focused, you know, uh, criminal justice reform, you know, all the way through addiction treatment and expansion. Right. Well, you know, criminal justice reform in New Jersey was enacted, uh, bail removed in 2017. And that was under Chris Christie. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, we'll make it into a, either a liberal issue or a democratic issue. It didn't occur under it occurred under a Republican Republican administration. 
And a tough on crime one, right? Remember, he was a U.S. attorney for eight years. And he certainly wasn't known for letting people off with a slap on the wrist. <laughs> right. And I would say in New Jersey, when it comes to municipal court cases for nonviolent offenses, for lower level crimes, criminal justice reform works. Um, you know, there are less people uh, being detained on, you know, frivolous matters or matters that would keep them in custody. You can hear my office in Atlantic City. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, matters because they can't afford bail. Like, there's yeah. nobody in custody right now because they can't afford bail because uh, they're indigent. Now, I would say that um, you know, I see I see issues with criminal justice reform when it comes to the prosecutor's power to charge and with certain offenses where there's now presumption of detention, which wasn't there in 2017. They keep adding more charges to the presumption of detention and, um, you know, the public safety assessment and how that's applied today. But when it comes to indigent clients being in prison or jail, waiting in jail because they can't afford it, that issue has been uh, reformed. And that's good. People shouldn't be sitting in custody because they don't have money, you know. That's right. That's, and, and and dangerous people shouldn't be let out just because they have money. And right. and I think that's what a lot of people, you don't forget that, but I think a lot of people don't realize that part of it. Like, you know, I remember uh, uh, Bale's a lot of the work I've done for Arnold Ventures. And, uh, and you know, they keep calling it Bale. It was called bail reform, bail reform, bail reform. I said, no, bail reform is like a loaded term, like defund the police, right? Like what this really is, our system in New Jersey is risk-based bail, right? They look at the risk and if you're deemed too risky, you sit. And if you're not deemed too risky, you get to leave either on your own or with conditions. And I think that, that you know, my old clients, you know, could buy their way out of almost any bail, you know, with well, subject to a source hearing, but they could buy their way out of almost any bail. That could, That would never happen anymore. I like that you clarified the source hearing. I feel like you did that because you knew I would be able to call you on it because most people would be like a source hearing. What's a source hearing, right. you know? Right. Um, but, uh, right. And I and I do agree with you on that. I think that uh, what's deemed dangerous, you know, is definitely sometimes subjective to, uh, you know, where you live. And, uh, and I again, the charges are sometimes discretionary when it comes to the prosecutor's office. And, um, I know that prosecutors are doing their job just like I'm doing my job, but sometimes, you know, I see like the additional, you know, second degree or let me throw in this first degree, you know, I might not be able to prove it, but I can establish probable cause and then it changes the whole, the whole calculations kind of get cal get changed. So yeah, I think that, uh, it's an example of no one system is going to be perfect. I mean, the bail system based on, I like the way you said it is just because you have money, you should be able to get out of jail, you know, or you don't have money, you're stuck in jail is clearly a system that didn't work. The other reform in New Jersey that really has helped over the years is that uh, they moved the driver license suspension from most offenses. Oh, is that right? I didn't even know that. Right. So it used to be if you were convicted of a drug offense, you lost your license for a minimum of six months to 24 months. Yep, I remember that. You don't lose your license. Underage gambling, six months loss of license. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, there's no license suspensions on almost any offense now other than eluding. Um, 
Which makes sense. I mean, yeah, or I mean, if you have the scene, or leaving the scene of an accident, or you know, I didn't lose my license for that. Actually, um, the, the, through an anomaly in the plea agreement, my license was never suspended um, because there there is no mandatory. There was no mandatory suspension on the two C charge of it. There is on the ticket, um, but I could tell you that made absolutely no difference in my life because I wasn't driving anywhere in Bayside State Prison. Right. It is now a requirement of that plea. It's a two year no. loss of license under the 2C. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So, you'll when when you get your law license back, you'll have to catch up on the last uh Yeah. I'll be doing maritime law or something like that. I won't be catching up on any on anything. No, I understand. <laughs> <Doing> maritime. <laughs> so, um with all of this, I mean your story is uh I want to say it's like a movie story. It's it's sad where you, you know, the, the, what you've had to work through and the trauma that you've experienced, the mental health, um, the, I'm going to say crimes that you committed, you know, um, uh, using your words and, uh, and still the ability to, um, to, uh, you know, affect so many lives positively, I guess I would say to you, you know, um, what what is your goals in life now your hopes you know uh do you have i mean do you have the long-term plan or are you still living i'm sure you're still living day to day you know yeah my only my only goal is to be the best father and husband i can be that's the only thing i i really care about um i don't and that's really it um it, it it's it's i'm no i'm not driven by career my 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 career is I want to do impactful work. Mm-hmm. I want to help people. I want to make sure that I can do things that help prevent tomorrow's victims, right? Because as I said, I can't build a time machine and not hurt the person that day. If I could, I would. Um, so my, my priority is to continue to help change systems to prevent tomorrow's victims, uh, help whoever I can along the way and as many people as I can along the way and, and be the best dad and, and husband I can. And that's, that's the universe I'm going to look at, which, which is quite interesting, right? So is, you know, when you're a defense lawyer doing the kind of work I was doing and the work that you do every day, you know, you know, you think you're, you know, you, not you, but I thought I was bigger than I was. Right. And, Today, I have much more access to actual power than I ever had before. I have no power of my own, but I can. I have a lot of numbers in my phone if I need to to call somebody, right? Oh. And I and, and I think that that I, but I never call anybody. I don't call any favors. I don't do any of the things. I mean, the uh, I've helped a few people get on the bench and things like that, but those are really really good people without access to do so. Um, and 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 I think that it's it's. I feel that God because I was ready for that kind of responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. God has now given it to me. If God would have given me the access of multiple presidents and half the governors in this country when I was still wild and out as a, as a raging alcoholic, right? God knows what I would have done with it. Right. And, but well, today, right. Today I'm, I'm, I'm because my focus is only on being a father and a husband and helping, helping the next person in need. Um, that my career is simply my career my career ambitions are simply the math problem to make sure i make enough money to to do what i have to do for my family and to make sure i'm making a difference so it, it's I, I i can't even believe i say that because if you would have said, asked me in t- 2010 what my plan was you know it would have been a much different answer 
possibly to rule the world. Um, <laughs> no, but but I understand. I would say to you that um, when your kids get older and they tell you all the things that you don't know, it's like the most humbling experience. And so uh, if I did think I was uh, going to be ruling the world or making all the connections, and, and I too, you know, do have a lot of people that I can, you know, call if need be, I would tell you, um, having four young adultish kids, you know, is humbling enough for that me to know that I am not, you know, as they would say, I'm not all that, you know, they tell me all the things I don't know. So, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, it's amazing what you've done. And I think that it's important for people to know that are struggling with alcohol, mental health, drugs, that uh, there is a road to recovery and there is ways to, uh, you know, uh, or I would say people to reach out to that do want to help and services to provide for them. Yeah. And I think you have to, I mean, you really, you owe it to yourself, anybody who's listening, who might, if anything at all is familiar <laughs> that I've talked about in, in this podcast, if anything is familiar, you already got, got something wrong. So you better get on the phone with somebody before, uh, I mean, you implode your own life, or as I nearly did, well, I say, you know, kill somebody. Um, and I think that that's, that, that's, you, there's no words to describe what it's like to live the life I live today, knowing what I did then, mm -hmm. right? And knowing how fucking unnecessary it was, right? Like, not that, not that crime is necessary, but like, when, when, I, when I think back about how simple it would have been in life to just not have that occur, right? right. We only would have to make a few minor tweaks earlier in life, and that person never gets hurt. It just, it, like I, I bang my head against the wall, you know, thinking about it. But hopefully, if anybody on your show, or excuse me, listening to your show is going through something similar, reach out. I mean, first of all, I mean, well, just Google me and all my contact information is very easy to find, right? I've been national media and all those things i'm not a hard guy to find and i'd be no, happy to and it'll all be on the mighty Merp website as well uh yeah. all your contact information will Great. be there um and and so uh john has uh just announced that if you need help and you don't know where to go that you can reach out to him yep. and he will help make the connection 100 percent, 100 percent. you know let's fix this thing together before something really bad happens Thank you so much for your time, John. I really appreciate it. I had a- Well, thank you. Thank you for all you do and for, for using your significant platform to amplify, you know, these important issues because, you know, someone of your stature and who's so well-respected throughout New Jersey and beyond to, to take an interest in your Friday evening to, to make sure this message gets out to people in need. I mean, it says, speaks volumes of you. And I'm very, very blessed to just be a small part of this. Oh, thank you, John. Did you notice my screen got a little darker because uh, uh, the person who thought they were the last person in the office shut off most of the lights during our interview. <laughs> and I didn't want to get up to turn it back on. So. I, I didn't notice that, but, um, but you'll, you'll catch that in post, as they say. Yes. Well, thank you again. Thank you, my friend. Have a wonderful evening and a great weekend. Thank you. The best place to listen, watch, like, and subscribe is at MightyMerp.com. That's Mighty, M-E-R-P.com.